0: Welcome to NatSec Tech, a podcast from the Special Competitive Studies Project. I'm Jean Meserve. Dystopian visions of our future often include robots that can kill without restraint, without conscience, often resulting in tremendous loss of human life or even human extinction. While these flights of fantasy are, with every passing day, edging closer to reality. We're going to talk about that and much more today with Liz O'Sullivan, an expert on ethics and artificial intelligence. Liz runs an artificial intelligence validation company called Vera. She is a member of the National AI Advisory Committee, and she is part of the Campaign to Stop Killer Robots, a coalition of non-governmental organizations. Liz, great to have you with us. Hi, thanks for having me. So, ChatGPT is all the rage. We're reading all about it. I know you've been looking at it from a security and privacy viewpoint. What are you learning? Gosh, there's so much
1: to talk about here, and it's such an exciting time. Um, In a lot of ways, it feels like the public has just finally begun to understand and catch up with the speed that this technology is growing and getting more and more useful and more and more intelligent. And what's really interesting about models that are powering uh, ChatGPT, generative AI in in a lot of different forms is that they're very, very big models. And as a result of that, they're trained on unfiltered in a lot of cases, scrapes of the internet, which might include the work and product of artists or writers. It might include sensitive information that's been shared uh, publicly on social media. It might include private information or talk Toxic hate speech from various sources uh, like Reddit or other places where people um, use to go to vent. And uh, the models themselves are so big and there's so much data involved that it's almost impossible to actually review every bit of data before it goes into the model. Um, these models are also so complicated that figuring out where those toxic spaces might be uh, is a really difficult and ongoing challenge that a lot of companies are uh, admitting now that it's going to take forever, almost like an ongoing experience of trying to understand not just what the model has inside of it, but how it will actually react to that information um, and
0: may potentially create new risks along the way. But it is possible to address this?
1: It depends on what you mean by address, right? Uh, You know, because of course, AI safety and responsible AI are emerging fields that have been around for, you know, some years now, you know, debate about when these fields actually got um, their start. But a lot of people put it around the 2016 era with the advent of a couple of different organizations and papers and conferences that sprung into action. And so the research into sort of we call it in in some cases, mitigation of these risks or even just the measurement of them is is an ongoing pursuit. So yes, it is possible to reduce risk and to try to address some of the issues with these models. But I think it's important that we all understand it's not a one-time thing. It's something that's an ongoing practice that uh, really to do it right requires a commitment from the companies who are building this tech to commit to an ongoing audit basis or to an ongoing pursuit of trying to make them better um, and more aligned with human values, they made that commitment they do, and you're you're right that a lot has been said around safety, and yet there are still some significant concerns as we've seen from uh, the recent actions from Italy to actually to totally restrict access to uh, things like ChatGPT, um, and ChatGPT in particular, because of the privacy implications, uh, nobody whose training data was publicly available has consented to having been a part of the creation of these models. And a lot of people would say that that makes them a priori unethical. Um, so it, it's one thing to publicly say that we have a commitment to safety and ethics, but we have to look closer and figure out whether the actions of the company actually actually do represent uh, what they're claiming in in otherwise marketed or, or PR.
0: Some people are calling for a moratorium on the development of these technologies until we have a better sense of issues just like these. Would you agree with that?
1: That's a really good question and one that's challenging because in a lot of ways, I do think that some degree of slowing down would be Very favorable, and it would be it would give us the time to develop the needed safety techniques that um, could exist in a perfect world, but it's difficult to to imagine a pause working without actual commitment from the government and specifically within Congress to uh, require that our artificial intelligence is truly representative of our democratic values. So I don't think that calling for a pause or for a moratorium um, in itself is, is necessarily the most useful thing to do at this moment in time. I think that we really need to see more action on the government side to guarantee and to require companies to take these practices seriously
0: and to make that commitment in a more substantial way. Also, wouldn't it have an effect on U.S. competitiveness if we said, oh, let's slow down?
1: It's, a, it's an interesting point and, and one that we hear a lot. You know, I think people who live here in this country can all agree that we, we see the value in democracy. We see the value in Capitalism in our ability to innovate and to create really interesting and, and fun technologies to create, uh, you know, these kinds of, of uh, models. But uh, the big question in my mind is, what are we really competing for? You know, um, in a lot of ways, when that argument is invoked, people are saying it uh, behind the context of, hey, you know, we need to compete with China, we need to compete with Russia. They're anti democratic and so on and so forth. But a lot of the proposed solutions to driving that degree of uh, of uh, com- competition actually do begin to look authoritarian in, in nature as well. So unchecked capitalism on its own is m- perhaps not the most uh, beneficial thing for all of society when you see power being concentrated in the hands of a very few people who are the only ones with billions of dollars to generate these kinds of powerful technologies. And there's a lot of power in that, a lot of power that is unelected. And so the big question is, in competing with authoritarian rivals, are we actually becoming more similar to them along the way? And is that really
0: American or or democratic in nature? So you recommended that there be government action. Any indication that they are grappling with these questions and that they might actually do something effective about it?
1: They absolutely are. There's plenty of interest within Congress and specifically uh, the House of Representatives. But even more recently, uh, Senator Schumer introduced uh, his work to begin looking to craft legislation around uh, regulating AI. And there are also a lot of people who say that the government is already empowered with laws that could require certain degrees of transparency through consumer safety laws, or uh, require audits or other forms of validation through anti discrimination laws. I think what we're missing right now is a full-throated commitment from government agencies that manage these practices, like the FTC or the EEOC um, or the CFPB, uh, with some exceptions. Some of these agencies are very, very interested and have been publishing white papers and um, indicating their their attention is there um, if the staffing is there. And I think that's a part that we should absolutely try to address uh, sooner rather than later.
0: So there is some auditing going on now. Is that effective or ineffective?
1: It depends on who's doing it. It's a really good question. Um, So just like any other industry, uh, there are good motivations and there are uh, motivations that just seek to check boxes. And so we as an organization from time to time do provide uh, these sorts of checks on uh, various models. And the biggest source of uh, business and leads that we've received have come on the heels of a New York law that specifically targets HR platforms, Um, not just AI, but all forms of automation, and it's called Local Law 144. And it's the first in the country to require the inspection by an outside auditor. Uh, Guidance for that law actually just finalized, and what's really interesting about it is that it, it And now, after many revisions, is getting closer to a clear definition about um, who is able to perform this kind of audit. And they've clarified that it shouldn't be someone inside the organization or someone who's got a financial interest in that organization. But unlike the financial audit industry, there aren't any certifications or requirements to go through training programs to validate the legitimacy of these audits. And so in some ways, it's a bit of a wild, wild west situation where um, we're hoping to get more
0: specificity and perhaps Senator Schumer is, is one of those who can help that happen. I'm guessing that an audit would require a company to share their algorithms. I'm also guessing that a company wouldn't want to do that because their algor- algorithms are, are trade secrets. They're the coin of the realm. Absolutely. You're
1: right on target there when you talk about the tension between, um, in some ways, not just trade secrets, but privacy as well. Uh, There's always implications when you have the need to share training data, um, prediction data, and of course, the algorithms themselves, although that's not always entirely possible. It just depends on what you're trying to measure and uh, what your approach to this audit question actually is. Um, But in some cases, and I think you're right right to bring this up, there are laws that conflict in in their protections of privacy and the requirements that they have um, for particular companies, especially in the European Union, where these really strong and wonderful privacy protections um, encourage companies to collect the minimum amount of data when the more thorough an audit you want, the more data you need. And so similarly, um, those kinds of tensions really do need to be worked out.
0: I want to uh, change our focus here and go to killer robots. It's such a <laughs> sexy term. Explain exactly how you define a killer robot.
1: Sure. So in, in uh, advocacy, we refer to them or, or the technical term for them is uh, lethal autonomous weapon systems or laws. We love acronyms. And the definition has varied over time. It it really boils down to whether the weapon system can select and engage uh, its own target without human intervention. And that really harkens back to a couple of different concepts within um, artificial intelligence systems design that look at things that are called things like human in the loop or human on the loop. And so a human in the loop would essentially get a recommendation from a machine that they can then decide whether to agree or disagree with. A human on the loop um, is somebody who is simply watching the recommendations of the machine and and has the opportunity to intervene, but it does not require that approval. And so there's a a huge spectrum of weapons that have degrees of auto-targeting, there are huge degrees of uh, risks involved. And so a lot of times people try to compare things like a missile defense system to uh, what we would call uh, a killer robot or the kind of killer robot that we're advocating against. And uh, that's that's not really an an appropriate comparison. You know, I don't think any anybody in the advocacy space here is trying to remove missile defense systems from protecting our country and our allies. Um, But we can see a future where the technology components to put together some really, really startling scenarios all exist already. And so the prospect of combining them is something that we're trying to get ahead of and trying to stop before it happens. Why do you want to stop
0: their development and their deployment?
1: Well, I think for me personally, it comes down to the need to work together as a whole of our planet to decide what degree of autonomy we feel is appropriate to give over to machines. And there are lots of reasons to worry about this. And, and one of the more common reasons that are is invoked is the presence of <clears throat> discriminatory bias in, in algorithms that power uh, vision or other forms of identification that might select targets and might do it in a disproportionately discriminatory way. Um, but that's just one of many reasons. There are reasons to worry about um, hacking, for instance, and if they're if they're not connected to an off switch, for instance, uh, then they might become uh, rogue. Right? They might actually uh, begin to ignore human human or at least their their commanding signals and be very easily co opted by an enemy. Um, but I think uh, one of the major reasons why uh, that was con- compelling for me was this notion that uh, the less well, the easier it is for us to deploy force as a country um, and the lower the circumstances of loss that exist, it's it's potentially um, easing our comfort levels of engaging and even possibly going to war. So the, the worry is that um, under the guise of making war less deadly, are we actually encouraging the world to get to a point where it, there is more and greater loss of life. So um, honestly, I'm sure you, you, you can infer, I, I can talk about this all day, every day. So I'm
0: trying to just to pick the, the, the best ones for, for you to, to dig into. So a couple of follow-ups here. First, when it comes to bias, when it comes to security concerns over hacking, let's say, aren't those things that can be corrected? I think we know by now
1: that the industry of cybersecurity is one that is never perfected. It's not something uh, similar to the pursuit of, of mitigating bias or mitigating risks in AI uh, that evolves very quickly over time. And we really do not have the ability to know uh, what exploits exist out there in the world. And often often we find out about them uh, post hoc, so after something terrible has happened. Um, and so the, the concerns here that there could exist something like a perfect system that's an unhackable system, I don't think that um, you know people in the government with, with this direct experience um, of dealing with and trying to prevent these interventions um, and, and uh, takeovers, uh, would ever make that claim. Similarly, but but I'm not a cybersecurity expert. Um, I, I am an AI expert, and similarly, I can I can tell you that as somebody who's you know been a part of the training of hundreds of models, um, uh, what's most frustrating about this work of AI safety, of AI, uh, you know, responsibility or reliability, is that every time we find an issue that needs to be corrected, um, there's another one lurking just behind it that no human ever could have pre- pre- predicted. And a big part of that is just the sheer complexity of the models predicting factors, and and the ways that they come to conclusions are significantly different from human logic and human rationale. Um, so. Again, it's, it's one of those situations where they, you can imagine or you can hope for a perfect system, but it, it's one that most experts agree never will exist.
0: You referred to this, um, that some people argue that these weapons could actually make war less lethal by, for instance, enhancing the accuracy of targeting. Um, they say this could actually reduce civilian casualties. Do you not buy that argument? I
1: don't. And uh, part of the reason is because everything that we do to test these systems happens under lab conditions, which means we know where they're going to be deployed, in what way, what sorts of adversaries they're going to face. And in the real world, that sort of knowledge is not there. And when it's not there, you are essentially deploying an AI model into a system that it's never seen before, uh, which is where some of the really, really most significant risks actually happen, and that's where they take place. And unfortunately, it's just really difficult for us to be able to predict what will happen when you move, for instance, from those lab conditions into the real world. This is one of the many problems that we've experienced helping clients move AI that has nothing to do with weapons into production. Um, And even using state-of-the-art techniques, there's always something, there's always some edge case or outlier uh,
0: for which the, the consequences could be very serious. So you want to see these weapons systems banned under what umbrella would that be under the United Nations or some other entity?
1: I would love to see global cooperation on this matter. I think it's an issue that is not for any one country or the rivalry between any countries or any set of them uh, to decide unilaterally or to decide out of the drive for competition. Um, I think it's something that has sparked human curiosity and imagination since pretty much the beginning of of fiction and folktales. And as a result, we have been thinking and writing and imagining uh, the results of what could happen when you introduce intelligence or even just highly predictable qualities into computers. Uh, And, you know, it's actually not surprising that, um, like in many other fields, science fiction has predicted a lot of the problems that we can imagine being um, real problems today. Uh, so the result of this is just to say that our, our imaginations for what could go wrong and what could go well are, are not... Indicative of any particular nationality or goal. Um, It's a human thing. And I believe, and I think a lot of people would agree with me, that this decision of how much control, especially when it comes to killing, uh, should be delegated to machines. And it's something that should be a global effort that's not run exclusively by governments, but that should be run
0: with a more democratic nature. Who's investing in developing these systems? And do you think there's really any chance? that they're gonna sign on to a deal like this, a ban?
1: A lot of countries are investigating. Uh, there have been negotiations for some time now at the CCW, a subcommittee of the United Nations, uh, which focuses on uh, call them certain conventional weapons. And uh, I believe that a lot of this uh, research is being done within the U.S. military, as you would expect, um, but also within the U.S. military industrial complex. And what's worrying about that is again seeing this influence of the need to keep a company alive or to grow in a capitalist way um, leads to a conflict in motivations uh, between the quality of the product and the drive to deploy it. So, um, you know, famously uh, Eisenhower in his speech uh, mentioned that the only way to counter a growing influence of the military industrial complex in a democratic society in a way that will guarantee the continuance of our democracy is for an engaged public to voice opposition when things seem like they're getting out of hand. And in some way, that's exactly what I
0: feel our work is connected to. The Department of Defense recently issued a new directive on autonomous weapons. Have you taken a look at that? And does it allay any of your concerns?
1: I have. And in fact, I think you're mentioning. Um, direct, it's policy 3000.09, which was originally created uh, many years ago and now has received an update. And what was so interesting about that policy is that at the time, uh, the US press reacted to it by saying and claiming that the military had uh, published a policy that in some way prohibited or stated that they would refuse to use fully autonomous weapon systems. And in fact, that is absolutely not the case. It simply sates, it lays out uh, various requirements for approval processes. And uh, the update, which has been long awaited and very needed, I, I totally agree. For uh, the this re- the need to be specific about um, you know these weapons now that they actually do to some degree exist, um, is that. Uh, it, it this added specificity makes it seem a lot more like the U.S. is or does intend to use these kinds of weapons, and so the while I agree that the policy itself is quite robust, and there are a lot of things that deeply align with responsible ai practices and do present you know some very intelligent thinking about various ways these these weapons could fail what worries me is that this added robustness is almost on its own indicative that the next time we do see armed conflict that we'll we'll see a lot more uh, of this kind of autonomy existing and uh, it's kind of a step in the wrong direction
0: I want to step back to the issue of a ban for just a moment, if we could. If some countries signed on to that, but others did not, wouldn't it make the law-abiding countries more vulnerable? It just depends on how it's
1: executed. So, first of all, I think we need – this is a moment – as I mentioned previously, about realizing the pursuit of human imagination uh, for as long as we we can actually have you know insight into our history, and it's it's unprecedented, right? Like this is this is something that we've never had to grapple with as a society, and so we should treat it that way uh, with the with the corresponding respect that um, most of the issues that we have uh, are around the deployment and use of these weapons. Um, must be, uh, they must be democratic and at least solved in, in some way, shape or form, right? We we need to have the input of not just militaries, not just individual countries, and especially not just companies um, deciding what degree of, of autonomy should exist because it, it could potentially put us all at risk. So I, I, I see where you're coming from. And I want to, to just reinforce that we have to have the ability to imagine a better world and one that can exist where we can come together and agree that there are risks that are too grave to ignore. Um, similarly, we as, as we did with international committees on the proliferation of nuclear power when,
0: when that happened initially. So we've been talking about this in terms of companies, in terms of nation states. I'm thinking back to the whole conversation about weapons of mass destruction. And there was concern about rogue groups, terror groups, for instance. Given how widespread knowledge is about artificial intelligence and weapon systems, is there the possibility that some group could develop this separate and apart from a nation, a group that would not be covered by any sort of international ban, any sort of international conversation on the technology.
1: Well, you're entirely right that billions and billions of dollars in Silicon Valley have been spent to make it easy and easily accessible and cheap to train, to create your own models. And you can even download um, and use open source versions that are pretty close to state-of-the-art without much of an engineering background. And similarly, there exist consumer technologies for drones and and remote-controlled cars and et cetera. Um, So the risk of this being adopted by a particular individual user with nefarious intent is a real one and it it's possible to cover that type of uh, weapon under an international accord, even if it also requires individual nations to regulate in that way. Um, So again, it's not just using, we're not recommending just using one tool um, to try to avert this potential disaster. We're talking about using everything that we need to, to fully cover the surface of that risk.
0: This podcast is geared towards the general public, not people necessarily with a deep knowledge of technology or national security, for that matter. Why should the public care about this issue?
1: It's just an issue that concerns all of us. And we saw this happen when nuclear technology uh, was first introduced. And, and we now have a world that is significantly less safe because countries competed to make bigger and more uh, weapons and to obscure the existence of these weapons from one another in an arms race that is really sounding a little and more every day similar to the kind of rivalry that exists among great powers today. And as a result, we all live under this Fear or this worry that um, when conflicts occur, as we've seen in Ukraine, um, that threats get made and people have to live with the knowledge that um, you know countries have the ability to simply ab- like push a button and obliterate an entire city. Um, that's a real risk, and we we we're still. Working to try to reduce that risk, uh, fifty, you know, years and years later, um, after just this technology's beginnings, so. Isn't it a smart thing to try to prevent a similar situation if we take the argument that's so often and commonly made um, by the people selling this technology and AI in general, that it is a technological revolution on the order of uh, nuclear power. If they're right, then shouldn't we also strive to prevent some of the negative consequences that we've seen um, that really did occur from the advent of a similarly powerful technology? Not too late. I don't think so. It's never too late. First of all, uh, the the advocates that I've met along the way are still very committed to reducing the nuclear threat for the benefit of humanity. And we are just now beginning in the last few years to see exactly how powerful AI really is. And it's great in some ways that ChatGPT has introduced the, the rest of society to understand what those of us in the industry have seen for some time now, that this technology is potentially world changing. And the more people that get involved in this discussion, the more people who begin to see what's possible today, and not just in some future science fiction world, uh, the more people we hear, you know, have concerns and can participate in this meaningful democratic conversation about where we go from here.
0: Liz O'Sullivan, Avera, the National AI Advisory Committee and the Campaign to Stop Killer Robots. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. This has been NatSec Tech, a podcast from the Special Competitive Studies Project. I'm Jean Meserve. Thanks for joining us. We hope you will again.